We are in part six of our Life of Worship series, where we're going through the books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles, and really trying to understand a little bit about what worship is and what worship is not. Um, there's no way to understand the life of David, which really what this series is all about, with understa- without understanding the life of Saul, the king that was before him. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about Saul, watching this soap opera drama kind of unfold in front of us. I titled this morning's message, The School of Hard Knocks. And I want to start with a concept that I would assume is familiar to everyone. Uh, If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you understand the challenge here. And it's the issue of waiting on God. We're just not good at it. That's pretty much where we have to start, I guess. Um, Why aren't we good at it? Well, there seems to be this idea that while God is relatively quiet, we make a bunch of plans. And we find out that when He does speak... Sometimes those plans don't line up and we don't like that. It's where our kingdom and his kingdom clash There seems to be this tension of Well, I don't know if god understands. I don't know if god sees. I don't know if god cares Because he's not doing it the right way God is not responding in an appropriate time frame Have you ever put time frames on god? What happens when he violates those? Because I will suggest that he does that more often than not. What happens to your heart? Do you get bitter at him? Do you think that he's a bad leader? How does that work for you? Um, Probably some of the most common ones that kind of run into me with friends of mine and family here at church is, you know, I always thought I was going to be married. And I I thought that maybe when I turned 26, I would already be starting a family by now. But I don't have anyone, and there's no one on the horizon. Um, The You know, I thought that when we first got married, that maybe we would start a family and have children. And I thought that was the plan. I thought that... I was laying all my plans out before God. I even asked him to bless them. And there are no children in our foreseeable future. Or there's the idea of, you know, I've been praying for the restoration of my marriage. And I pray and I pray and I pray and there's no movement. You understand, these are timing issues. And when God does not move in our time frame, we begin to make determinations about his character. Well, God must be this. We say things like, God, I don't know if you get it, but we are running out of time here. Right? As if you were going to notify God about this. That he's like, oh my gosh, you're right. You know what? I I didn't even notice that. That's really glad that you're telling me how to run my universe. But the Bible is full of... People wrestling with God's timing. Some of us, as a matter of fact, feel stuck in our Christianity. We, we feel like there's not a lot of wiggle room. We've got to do things a certain way. And, and we feel this tension of, um, I'm not in control of anything. And then we start just getting really frustrated. All right, 
let me be honest with you, all right? This is going to be a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek here, but do you realize that you can do something about your situation now? Um, as a matter of fact, you can choose poorly right now. You can mess things up in a relative hurry. Um, you can make bad decisions rapidly, and you can really change the course of your life. A lot of us say, well, I don't have anybody. You can have the wrong person right now. I know you feel frustrated by that, but no, you have options. You could certainly pick bad. As a matter of fact, the fill in the blank in front of you is probably what I'm trying to get across. You can wait for what's right or rush what's wrong. You can wait for what is right or you can rush what is wrong. No, you certainly can have what you want right now. Isn't that basically Satan's lie ever since the garden? Has it really changed? God's holding out on you. I really think you should eat the fruit. It's probably going to go better for you. You know, really, he's kind of holding back. So why don't you just pull the trigger on it? Why don't you just go with that? What are you going to wait for God's timing? God may not even care about it. You know, it's not even that big of a deal. Yeah, I understand that in some way a long time ago, he said, hey, don't eat the fruit. But you know what? He really didn't explain himself super well. He's like, well, you're going to die. I can tell you right now, you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. Watch, just try it. Oh, look, you didn't die. See, I told you. And I don't think that Satan has changed that tactic all that much. I think he consistently says, God's holding out on you. God's pulling back on you. God doesn't care about your situation. You know what? He's trying to limit you because really, since it's all about him, and we all agree that we're here to worship him, so because it's all about him, he does not have his eyes upon your concerns. You might need to handle this one. You know, if it's a dating relationship that you know full well is dishonoring to God, I don't know if God knows what he's talking about. I mean, it's different in your situation, right? I mean, isn't this all pretty common, stuff that we wrestle with? But let's be very clear. We do have options. I'm just not sure that you want the rush the bad option. I just don't think that's going to get you what you want. Because really, in your scenario, in your heart and in your mind, your scenarios work out. But I can assure you, if you violate God's word, it will not work out great. It may start good. You'll get the immediate satisfaction of eating a good-looking fruit. It will be as tasty as you thought it was. But when you finish the fruit... Man, the emptiness and the pit that is left is extraordinary. The cost of disobedience is extreme. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1? It's page 198, and the Bible's handed to you. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. What we're about to read is Saul wrestling with the timing of God. And we're going to look at him and go, well... You obviously don't remember the Bible stories. You sure didn't do that right. And I would hope that we all turn that camera back around on ourselves and realize we're doing it all the time. Saul is in many ways no different than us. Maybe one of degree and we're not having ours written down in the best-selling book of all time, right? 
So no, you're not being as humiliated as he is, but let's not pretend that we're not of the same sort. We certainly are. Let me just read a little bit of the beginning of chapter 12, just to get a kind of a context and and then we'll pray and dive into it. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated or whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You've not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You've not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said, the Lord is witness against you. And also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people. All right, here's the kind of intro idea is that he starts out and he's saying, listen, there's a transfer in power here. And as my final act as judge of Israel, I'm going to judge myself and I'm going to judge your behaviors. I haven't done anything. I've led you right. Yes. They all said, yeah, absolutely. So I've been honest with you and clear and forthright. I have wisdom on my side. I've led you this whole time. I know you. I know the scenario of God. I understand what's going on. They all said, yeah, absolutely. All right. Then what I'm about to say next I want you to take extraordinarily serious. And he goes into giving them a clear understanding of what their choices have been. Maybe the same thing needs to be said to us today. I hope that our hearts are open. I prayed this weekend that all of our hearts would listen, that if God is trying to tell us something, we would hear it. Let's see what God has to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We pray right now, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and that you would allow us to hear you deeply. That if you're trying to guide us or give us discernment or wisdom in our lives, that we would not block you out. We would not run from it. We would not pretend that you're talking to somebody else. For Lord, many of us are stuck between a rock and a hard place. We're being pushed up against decisions. In the back of our mind, we know you've said something about it, but we're trying to pretend that we didn't hear it. I ask, Lord, that you would be clear, and once you are clear, give us the strength, encouragement, and comfort to make good choices. Be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'll continue with the intro, is that... With the new arrival of a monarchy, switching from a judge model to a king model, there's a lot of shift that needs to occur. Samuel's been leading, in all ways, Israel for a number of years. With the arrival of Saul, he has to take some of his power and slide it over to him. Samuel's no longer the political leader, the military leader of Israel. That goes over to Saul. So there needs to be some adjustments. However, Samuel's not going anywhere. He will still operate as priest, as teacher, as prophet. These things will all continue. So he's about to say, as I step out of the role, let's take a look at it. 
how did I do? They all said, man, you did amazing, right? He says, my sons are here among you. The way that I take that is that they've already said your sons are corrupt. Do you remember that? That was last week. Your sons are corrupt. So what I hear is he said, I pulled them off the field. I have been honest before you. When I found out my sons are dishonest before you, I pulled them out of their positions. They no longer operate in the same function. So I'm cleaning up my hands. Everything is clear, right? And everybody says, yeah, no, 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 you're, you're great. He said, now we're on trial here. God is our witness and his anointed one is observing. Now, that's a really interesting piece because the anointed one is the Old Testament way to refer to the coming Messiah. Well, we all know the Messiah is our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know that, but they knew that there was going to be a coming Messiah that would judge and rule. So this is a reference to Christ. So he said, all right, so I'm a good guy. And they all said, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then in verse six, let me paraphrase where he goes from here. He said, then let me make a case for you about God's leadership. You said mine is good, yet you rejected God's for a king. Let's recount how he has been as a leader. You see, when there was a bad famine in the land, God provided for the Hebrew people by sending Joseph, remember the coat of many colors guy, sends him into Egypt, locks him into a great position with Pharaoh. He brings all his brothers and family into Egypt and they're provided for. Over hundreds of years, they multiply, they become extremely numerous, and the Egyptians start worrying about them, so they put them under bondage and slavery. After a number of years, the oppression grew so severe that Israel cried out to God to deliver them. It was God's leadership that raised up who? Moses and Aaron to set the people free. It was God's military leadership that launched all the plagues that broke Egypt wide open. It was God's military leadership and design and direction that parted the Red Sea and allowed them to escape and shut the wall behind them. God is a good leader. You've all said that you don't like his leadership, so you switched over. But has he not been good to you? But after all of that, as we wandered in the desert, our forefathers forgot God. How do you forget God? Well, I don't know. How do you forget God? For some of us, probably the majority of us, we have a hard time keeping him front and center in our lives. As a matter of fact, let's say you have a small group. Some of us don't have a... a a small group or a life group or a Bible study. But let's say you have one of those on Thursday night. What is your Tuesday like? We're sufficiently distant from Sunday when Lance last brought up God. When I last taught on the Bible, you've had a lot of life go on in between there, right? You got things to do, you got work to do, you got a home to run. So on Tuesday, how much is God front and center for you or are the busyness of life pushing him out have you forgotten god do you forget god on a consistent weekly almost daily basis how do you keep him front and center do you need someone to come in and tell you are you waiting for sunday 
Are you waiting for your small group? Because that would be a big mistake. Because so many of us wrestle with this, uh, a number of years ago, many, many years ago, a book came out called Practicing the Presence of God. Some of you are familiar with it, a little small book. And it was basically a collection of letters going back and forth between a guy who published the book as a collection and a monk. A monk who was, for all practical purposes, a nobody. His name was Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was known in the monastery as kind of like the man. If you wanted to know about being close to Jesus, you go hang out with Brother Lawrence. What's ironic about him is he had no real title. He was a guy in the kitchen. He just washed pans and cooked stuff. That was it. He didn't do anything fancy. Well, everybody in the region knew about this man's incredible connection with Jesus. So this guy started a letter writing campaign back and forth with Brother Lawrence saying, how do you do that? And he said, well, it doesn't matter what you do. You just do everything as if Jesus is right there. So whether I'm washing dishes, he's there washing with me. It's not, it's not real magic. It's not a big deal. It's the idea that, of course, he walks with me. No matter where he goes. It doesn't matter if I'm doing something large and super important. I don't really have any of those. I just know that every day I tune my heart in to knowing that Jesus is with me. And that book became a bestseller. Brother Lawrence would have been horrified to know that after his death those works were published. He was not interested in trying to be popular. He just talked about how he ran his life. Do we do that? Or do we allow everything in life to push him out? And we don't think about him. When we come driving to church, we're like, oh, no, I've got to prepare my heart. Man, I'm not even ready for this. Man, I sure hope, you know what, as, as the music starts going, I hope maybe then I can start settling down. And... Really, you're waiting for then? I don't even know how you can do that. I get here really early before services, and I'm barely prepped. You know what I mean? We have to be in this constant presence of God if we are to live lives that are honoring to his name. So he said, our forefathers, after all this amazing stuff happened, when God stopped doing the flash and flare and the craziness, they forgot it. So he allowed them to be reminded. How did he allow that? Well, Sisera, the commanding officer of a pagan city by the name of Hazor, he comes in, starts beating down on him. Then it's the Philistines and then it's the Moabites and they continue to beat down and shell upon the Israelis. And then what? Eventually they cry out. They finally cave. They snap and say, God, we have sinned against you. We turn to other things. We put other things in front of you. God, we need to be delivered. And he launched the period of the judges. And so Samuel breaks out four of them. He's like, maybe you remember these guys. Remember Jerob Baal? They're like, who? Gideon. Oh, yeah, I totally know Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Because it's kind of important to this one. Everybody remember what Gideon's like? Okay, here's the story of Gideon. Gideon had to go out. He was selected by God, and he was a super reluctant leader. He didn't want to do this. God calls him up and says, I need you to lead a military advance against the enemy and deliver the people of Israel. And he has an army of 32,000 that are there. God said, I'm not going to war with this many people. You need to cut it down. He's like, why? I thought the point was to win. He's like, because if you win with this many people, you're going to think it's all about you. 
And that's never going to work. That the whole point of winning this war is that people know that I'm with them. If you just outmatch the opponent, you'll just think it's you. So we have to actually carve it back. And he's like, well, how much? He's like, all right, let everybody go that's scared. He's like, I really don't think that's a good idea. 20,000 disappear. And he's like, great. All right, so God, I got like 10 grand left. No, way too much. He's like, what do you mean way too much? Now we're undermatched. Um, sift them again. He goes through this whole process and ends up with how many? 300. You remember that? He's like, God, this is ridiculous. Seriously, we're going to a war and I have 300 guys. Really? I mean, I've seen the movie. It went kind of good for them, but they all died at the end. How, what am I going to do with 300 guys? This is never going to fly. And God said, it's not your fight. Do you understand? This is never about you being a military superiority. This is about me moving in your midst. So no, 300 is fine. Do you remember how he won the battle? They broke a bunch of jars and made a bunch of lights and blew a bunch of horns. And the enemy freaked out and killed each other. And God's like, see, I told you. 300 is fine. So he said, do you remember God did that? That was God's big military leadership. He did pretty good, huh? You know what? What about Barak, Deborah's military leader, the only woman uh, judge of Israel that's ever listed? She has this military guy, Barak, and he comes out and he leads a big charge and they win. He said, what about Jephthah? Remember that tortured soul kind of weird guy that led Israel against the Ammonites? And Those were all God's ideas. Those were all his leadership of Israel. Me, Samuel, the guy you just said is a great leader. I got put here because of God. So don't tell me that God has not been a good leader of Israel. Of course he's been good. Do you realize when you wanted to set him aside to bring in a king, what you were rejecting? Do you see how severe that is? He just brings it right in front of their face. He said, eventually you've been brought into safety. But then something triggered a little while ago. And it's a story we just covered. And he recounts it. Look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you. And what does Nahash mean? Come on, we remember from last week he wrote a Harley. Snake, excellent, all right? But when you saw that snake, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though Yahweh, your God, was your king. Now we see the motivation for why they wanted a king then. Remember I told you, God was going to allow them to have a king, but it had to be in his timing and his person. They pulled the trigger too soon. Why? They were freaking out. You go, but Nahash shows up in chapter 11. They wanted a king back in chapter 8. That's out of line. Hold on. Historians tell us that the Ammonites led this long-term campaign moving up over a huge area. They knew it was coming. Finally, they panicked on it. And they said, God's never going to be able to win this battle. We need a king. He said, really? What, because he's lost so many battles before? I think his record is pretty stellar. 
But no, you looked at your circumstances and dictated that God was not sufficient. So you came up with your own plan. We want a king. Now, here's the king you've chosen. Saul goes, hi. Right? He's standing right there. Here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, great! This is all going to work out. God's willing to work with you and move forward. However, if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then... In order to make my point, stand still and see this great thing that Yahweh is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? And you're like, I don't, okay, I guess it is. Is it not late May? Is it not early June? Is it not the dry season? Look up in the sky. There's nothing going on. There's no clouds. I will do a miracle in front of you right now to make my point, is what Samuel says. Look at the next line. I will call upon Yahweh to send thunder and rain. Absolutely impossible in that time. And you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. And Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. And the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And the all people said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God and your servants for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Okay, what was he saying? And I wish I could totally do this. This would be great. Right? Finish a message. And now, a miracle to make my point. Wham! And then just freaks you out. Ah! Right? Okay. <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah, you're already freaked out. Good. Fantastic. Yeah. It only gets worse from here. Now, what was he saying? He was saying the only reason that I can figure out as to why you wanted to step God aside is because you don't think that he's present. You don't think that he's here. Well, guess what? He's right here. And the thunder and rain hit and dropped down. And everyone's freaked out. He's like, oh, now you're worried about it. Now you think that God's here. What, because if you can't see him, he's not here? Is that what you're telling me? That you're telling me that you need to see him. He's got to do a little dance for you, right? Because then you'll believe that he's here and you spend your whole life. I'll only serve you if you show yourself to me, if you do miracles in my midst and blah. Why do you consistently try to force God to cater to you? Is he not God? Is he not present in this very moment? And so we can ask ourselves practically. We can go in maybe in a healing and worship and prayer night. And we see all kinds of the move of God and the power of God. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, the Lord is here. Hold on. The Lord's here right now. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not here. Just because you're not seeing what you want does not mean he is not operating in our midst. Just because he's quiet and not flashy doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not moving amongst us right now. He said, what, you want to see it? Is that the deal? I'm going to embarrass you. God, show yourself. And the rain starts coming. And now they all go, I, I didn't see it. He's like, I know, that's why we had this conversation. So next time, when he goes quiet, please keep that in mind. He's right next to you. 
after they freak out for a while, then he gets to come in with the other part of it and he says, all right, all right, stop freaking out. Okay? God's not going to kill you right now. He designed you for the very purpose of getting glory for his name. He will walk with you. And this can all turn around. Yes, what you did was wrong. Yes, in rejecting his leadership and how you made the transition, unacceptable. I'm not going to excuse that. However, God is giving us a fresh start. And we can do this. So, let's make sure we follow God. Let's make sure our king follows God. As for me, as your leader, Samuel, I will continue to teach you right and wrong. I'm a Levite after all. I've always taught you right from wrong. And I've served you since I was a little kid. I've always been here to teach you. And I will not sin by forgetting to pray for you. It's interesting. Samuel, as I've told you every week, he's a huge intercessor. He's very big on prayer. We know that it's a big deal. Because not only does he mention it over and over and over, and he considers that if leadership doesn't pray for their people, they are sinning. That's how big of a deal it is to him. But in Jeremiah, another prophet is, has a word from God. And God goes, tell the people this, I'm going to wipe you out. And no matter what you say, I'm not listening to you. Even if Moses and Samuel were here, I wouldn't listen to you. How cool is it if your name gets dropped into the same sentence with Moses? You know what I mean? That's how big of a deal Samuel is as an interceder. Samuel said, I will still be here to pray for you. Saul may lead you, but I'm going to guide you in spiritual matters. So make a determination this day. We follow God, yeah? We do what he wants. If you do not, our nation and your king will be swept away. Well, that, of course, is prophetic because in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in, took out all the people, took them from their land, and the monarchy was destroyed and never reinstated. So it does not go well. It was prophetic, but he said we have a chance. How will we follow it? Let's pick it up in chapter 13, verse 1. So this is really the heart of the message today is this story about Saul. After all that talk, how is Saul going to handle things? He's their new king. Remember I told you, he is not spiritually locked in. It's almost like taking a secular king and having him run a religious nation. It's just a bad idea. But God selected Saul for them because he's the epitome, the perfect picture of what they wanted, not what they needed. Does that make sense? So look at what happens. This first, first sentence is absolutely complicated. You look at it, it says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. And you go, ah, Lance, actually, that's pretty straightforward. Here's the problem with it. In all our ancient manuscripts, here's how it actually reads. Saul was years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel two years. It's blank. It's completely wiped out in all of them. Nobody has any idea what they say. They're making it up. You're like, well, how'd they come up with 30? <laughs> it's really funny because it's not in there. And they kind of put a couple pieces together and they're like, well, and the first person that really kind of locked that one in was a church father named Origen. He's like, I'd say about 30. Everyone's like, yeah, 30, let's go with 30. You're like, what? Where did that come from? And then the 42 years, the only thing that's clear is there's a two there. 
And they're like, well, we know Saul didn't reign two years. That can't be right. They don't know what's before it. They don't know if it means just two years or if there's something in front of it. But we know that in the book of Acts, Paul says that Saul reigned 40 years. So they went, 42. That's why we have 42. Now, that's probably not what it means. And here's why. If Saul is 30 years old in this story, we have a really creepy scenario. Why? Because you're about to read that his son Jonathan is leading Israel. How old was he when Jonathan was born? If Jonathan's 20 and he's only 30, that makes him a father at 10. That's not right. So the numbers are really off. The whole thing about Old Testament numbers, the way they would write things is they would do full numbers and complete numbers and suggestive numbers. And then when it doesn't translate, because they're very hard to keep copying down, they eventually just go, I don't know. They just leave it out. So there's a lot of guessing in here. What it likely means is that in Saul's reign, two years into his reign, the first year he worked with this whole Ammonite problem, the second year he put a standing army together. So in his second year of rule, this story happened. We don't know how old he was. He must be in his 40s at least, if Jonathan's as old as we think he is. Okay? So let's go back to it. And so Saul makes a standing army to lead a revolution or rebellion against the dominating Philistines that are running them at this time. So, Saul, verse 2, chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's his son, his oldest, at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Okay, where'd he get the guys from? In our last story, when they had a big war, how many men came out to fight? 330,000. Do you remember that? He takes 3,000 and lets everybody else go home. That's his rebel army. Why that amount? I don't know. You're going to find out it's a little bit small for what he needs to do. But for whatever reason, he needs to have a military standing army at all times. This is the first mention of Jonathan, and we're going to hear a lot about him moving forward. Jonathan is a stud. Jonathan's a great guy. Has a terrible dad, but he's a great guy. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Then Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. All right. The Philistines, remember I told you, are not super numerous in terms of just people, but they have a big army. It's like all their guys are trained to fight. They were the ones that had iron chariots. An iron chariot is, as you are riding a chariot into war, it can make you go faster and kill a lot more people. The problem is, is that chariots have weak points where you can jam a spear in there and you can break the wheels and do that. Wherever there's a weak point, they make that part in iron. So you can't get through it. So the whole thing's not iron. It's just the weak points are iron. They were really far ahead of the Israelis in military advantage. The Israelis don't get chariot work. They don't get iron work until Solomon, much further down. So they're completely outmatched. Although Israel has more people, they're all farmers. They're not warriors. So the Philistines can actually move through. When they conquered Israel, they put little military outposts all over the place. They put a little governor there and try to run it. Well, Saul's like, you know what? 
We're going to break the Philistines off us, and we're going to lead a rebellion. It's not quite as easy as you might imagine. So they start the fight. Jonathan and his crew run in, attack, take over a military garrison. Now all Philistines are irritated. Watch this. It says, then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land. That's a call to war and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Oops. They didn't expect that type of retaliation. They stirred up a hornet's nest. They got 3,000 guys. And this huge army comes back at them. Now they're all freaking out. Saul did not exactly start this super well. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, that their army was hard-pressed, they hid. They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. All right, pretty bad situation. He's got himself into a bit of a pickle here. All his guys are afraid. That's his army. So he's got, what, 3,000 men around him. Instead of fighting the Philistines, he's got one hurdle. The hurdle is he agreed with Samuel that before they launched into battle, Samuel would offer up burnt offerings to God. That dedicates the war to God and involves the Lord into the battle. Now, kings can offer sacrifices, but this one was agreed that Samuel would do it, and kings can only do it, it seems in the Old Testament, if a prophet is there. And Samuel said, don't you dare go to war without me kicking it off. But the situation is dire. Watch what happens. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. Uh-oh. And Saul's men began to scatter. What is happening is as the longer he waits, and Samuel is taking too long, his military bails out on him. He has this huge Philistine oppression coming towards him of thousands upon thousands upon thousands and his soldiers leave and he's left with 600. That doesn't look good. You're going to get demolished. So look at the next phrase. So he said, verse 9, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Isn't that what you would have done? It was pretty dire. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Oh, shocker. Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, Well, when I saw the men were scattering, you didn't come at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought... Well, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't even sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled. I was forced to offer the burnt offering. You've acted foolishly, Samuel said. 
All right, let's make it personal. What would you have done? Well, I don't know. What did you do last time God asked you to wait? Did you push it? Did you pull the trigger too fast? Did you think that you knew better? Because here's the problem. Hey, God, things are getting worse. we got a time frame. I don't know if you're alert to this, but the enemy is advancing. Things are not going to go well. And every moment we wait, it all falls apart. So he said, bring me the sacrifice. This is ridiculous. Why would he do that? Same reason we do it all the time. Because we don't think that it's going to make a difference. And maybe... If it does make a difference, we can force the hand of God. Right? Well, I don't know. God told me that I should marry a Christian husband, but you know what? There aren't any. So maybe if I date this guy, God will turn his heart around. Huh. I wonder how many times I've heard that one. But you're going to force the hand of God. And that's going to go well for you. Oh, well, my, my girlfriend, she, she, it worked out for her. So it's going to work out for you because you push the hand of God. You sure about that? I understand why Saul did what he did. It's just wrong. I can see myself wanting to pull the trigger in the exact same way. Because nobody came through. God obviously wasn't paying attention. Samuel's late. Why do you think Samuel was late? I don't think Samuel planned it. I don't think he was that good at it. I think God planned it. I think God troubled Samuel to where Samuel couldn't get away and ended up being late. Because right when he finishes the sacrifice, the timing's a little weird, yeah? Then Samuel walks up. Come on. You think that wasn't planned? What was God's point? I'm going to reveal your heart. Because you don't take me seriously. You don't take my people seriously. You don't take my word seriously. So you know what? I'm going to let all Israel understand what type of leader they have. Watch. All I got to do is bring the pressure. You'll snap. Watch what happens. Oh no, it's getting worse. Of course it's getting worse. You have acted foolishly. Look at the price he pays. Look at the next line. You have not kept the command Yahweh your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Whoops. But now, your kingdom will not endure. You're done. What's the cost of disobedience? In this story, it's everything. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Meaning he has already brought a new leader that's in our midst. Who's he talking about? King David. King David's just a kid. Nobody even knows who he is. God does. Then Samuel left Gilgal. The prophet bails out on the campaign. Forget it. I'm out. And went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him, and they numbered about 600. Oh, now he has a desperate situation, and 
God is not pleased. Whoops. You could have had a desperate situation where God was involved. And as a matter of fact, if we want to talk about God numbers, he has twice as many as Gideon had. Right? Gideon had 300. He's got 600. And you look and you go, why would he do that? I mean, just look. In the Old Testament, he just talked to you about Gideon. How come you didn't believe God? What, you really take this seriously? There's all kinds of miracles in here. You have no faith that it's going to happen in your life, right? But you think it's any different for Saul? I'm always shocked at how much faith you'll have for me and none for yourself. Right? If I ask you to pray for me, you're totally convinced God will do it. But if you pray for you, nothing. Why is that? What, because it's different for me? Because God's power moves differently? Absolutely not. Change in scenario and your faith completely jumps. But when it comes to you, no, God won't move on my behalf. No, God will not be with me. Really? Why not? Here's the challenge. When we calculate our circumstance and determine that it's dire, we are only operating off our knowledge and none of God's. The other problem is that we keep saying the phrase, God, it's getting worse. But what if his reply is, I know, that's the plan. Hmm? What if his deliverance is contingent upon it getting worse? What if he refuses to act until we cross a desperation threshold? Then what happens if you go, God, clearly you don't realize how desperate the situation is. I'm going to take it into my own hands. What if you pull the trigger before it kicks off his deliverance? What's going to happen? What's the bottom line to all this? The bottom line is, oh God, increase our faith. Because we do not believe your word. Because we do not have faith that you see us. Or that you will move on our behalf. And Lord, we do not believe that you have led us well. Forgive us. For you are a good leader. No, it doesn't go the way we want. But it goes the right way. I don't know what you're facing in your life right now. I had some people come up to me after the services last night. And go, Lance, I kid you not. Here's my scenario. And it was exactly Saul's scenario. All right. Then I guess you've heard the word from the Lord, huh? And we say, but Lance, I don't know how to do that tension of living wisely and when God is speaking. When do I plan and when do I hold off? I know. It's really hard. And no, I don't have an answer for you. But I can tell you this. The problem with Saul versus David is they both screwed up but David was repentant and soft and Saul was not it was not about who does everything right it was what's your reaction and where's your heart at that's the big difference let's close in prayer Heavenly Father we submit ourselves afresh to you and ask that you would be 
pleased with us. We realize that we have done decisions without you, that we have made calls that we are now embarrassed about. We have things on our plate right now that stand up against us, and Lord, we're saying it's getting worse. You obviously don't care, and yet you do. Father, increase our faith that we might see the hand of our Lord working in our lives. Move in our midst and show us who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.